0: Volume 3 chapter 11 This is a LibriVox recording All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain For more information or to volunteer please visit librivox.org Mysteries of Udolfo by Anne Radcliffe Volume 3 chapter 11 What transport to retrace our early plays our easy bliss when each thing joy supplied the woods the mountains and the warbling maze of the wild brooks thompson blanche's slumbers continued till long after the hour which she had so impatiently anticipated for her woman fatigued with traveling did not call her till breakfast was nearly ready her disappointment however was instantly forgotten when on opening the casement she saw on one hand the wide sea sparkling in the morning rays with its stealing sails and glancing oars, and on the other the fresh woods, the plains far-stretching, and the blue mountains, all glowing with the splendors of day. As she inspired the pure breeze, health spread a deeper blush upon her countenance, and pleasure danced in her eyes. Who could first invent convents, she said, and who could first persuade people to go into them, and to make religion a pretense, too? where all that should inspire it is so carefully shut out god is best pleased with the homage of a grateful heart and when we view his glories we feel most grateful i never felt so much devotion during the many dull years i was in the convent as i have done in the few hours that i have been here where i need only look on all around me to adore god in my inmost heart saying this she left the window bounded along the gallery, and in the next moment was in the breakfast-room, where the Count was already seated. The cheerfulness of a bright sunshine had dispersed the melancholy glooms of his reflections. A pleasant smile was on his countenance, and he spoke in an enlivening voice to Blanche, whose heart echoed back the tones. Henri and, soon after, the Countess with Mademoiselle Byrne appeared, and the whole party seemed to acknowledge the influence of the scene. Even the countess was so much reanimated as to receive the civilities of her husband with complacency, and but once forgot her good humor, which was when she asked whether they had any neighbors who were likely to make this barbarous spot more tolerable, and whether the count believed it possible for her to exist here without some amusement. Soon after breakfast the party dispersed, the count ordering his steward to attend to him in the library went to survey the conditions of his premises and to visit some of his tenants henry hastened with alacrity to the shore to examine a boat that was to bear them on a little voyage in the evening and to superintend the adjustment of a silk awning while the countess attended by mademoiselle Byrne, retired to an apartment on the modern side of the chateau which was fitted up with airy elegance and as the windows opened upon the balconies that fronted the sea she was there saved from the view of the horrid pyrenees here while she reclined on a sofa and casting her languid eyes over the ocean which appeared beyond the wood-tops indulged in the luxuries of ennui her companion read aloud a sentimental novel on some fashionable system of philosophy for the countess was herself somewhat of a philosopher especially as to infidelity and among a certain circle her opinions were waited for with impatience and received as doctrines the lady blanche meanwhile hastened to indulge amidst the wild wood walks around the chateau her new enthusiasm where as she wandered under the shades her gay spirits gradually yielded to pensive complacency now she moved with solemn steps beneath the gloom of thickly interwoven branches where the fresh dew still hung upon every flower that peeped from among the grass and now tripped sportively along the path on which the sunbeam started and the checkered foliage trembled where the tender greens of the beech the acacia and the mountain ash mingling with the solemn tints of the cedar the pine and cypress exhibited as fine a contrast of colouring as the majestic oak and oriental plain did of form to the feathery lightness of the cork-tree and the waving grace of the poplar having reached a rustic seat within a deep recess of the woods she rested a while and as her eyes caught through the distant opening a glimpse of the blue waters of the mediterranean while the white sail gliding on its bosom or the broad mountain glowing beneath the midday sun her mind experienced somewhat of that exquisite delight which awakens the fancy and leads to poetry the hum of bees alone broke the stillness around her as with other insect of various hues, they sported gaily in the shade, or sipped sweets from the fresh flowers. And while Blanche watched a butterfly, flitting from bud to bud, she indulged herself in imagining the pleasures of its short day, till she had composed the following stanzas. THE BUTTERFLY TO HIS LOVE What bowery dell with fragrant breath courts thee to stay thy airy flight? nor seeks again the purple heath so oft the scene of gay delight long i've watched the lily's bell whose whiteness stole the morning's beam no fluttering sound thy coming tell no waving wings at distance gleam but fountains fresh nor breathing grove nor sunny mead nor blossom tree so sweet as lily's cell shall prove the bower of constant love and me when april buds begin to blow the primrose and the harebell blue That on the verdant moss bank grow With violet cups and weep dew. When wanton gales breathe through the shade, And shake the blooms and steal their sweets, And swell the song of every glade, I range the forest green retreats. There, through the tangled wood walks play, Where no rude urchin paces near, Where sparely peeps the sultry day, And light dews freshen all the air high on the sunbeam oft i sport o'er bower and fountain vale and hill oft every blushing flowered court that hangs its head o'er winding rill but these i'll leave to be thy guide and shew thee where the jasmine spreads her snowing leaf where mayflowers hide and rosebuds rear their peeping heads with me the mountain summit scale and taste the wild thyme's honeyed bloom whose fragrance floating on the gale Off leads me to the cedar's gloom. Yet, yet, no sound comes in the breeze, What shade thus dares to tempt thy stay? Once me alone thy wish to please, And with me only thou wouldst stray. But while thy long delay I mourn, And chide the sweet shades for their guile, Thou mayst be true, and they forlorn, And fairy favors court thy smile. The tiny queen of fairyland who knows thy speed hath sent thee far to bring ere the night watch stand rich essence for her shadowy car perchance her acorns cups to fill with nectar from the indian rose or rather near some haunted rill may dews that lull to sleep love's woe o, o'er the mountains bade thee fly to tell her fairy love to speed when evening steals upon the sky to dance along the twilight mead But now I see thee sailing low, gay as the brightest flowers of spring, thy coat of blue and jet I know, and well thy gold and purple wing. Born on the glade thou com'st to me, O welcome, welcome to my home, in lily's cell we'll live in glee, together o'er the mountains roam. When Lady Blanche returned to the chateau, instead of going to the apartment of the Countess, she amused herself with wandering over that part of the edifice which she had not yet examined, of which the most ancient first attracted her curiosity, for though what she had seen of the modern was gay and elegant, there was something in the former more interesting to her imagination. Having passed up the great staircase, and through the oak gallery, she entered upon a long suite of chambers, whose walls were either hung with tapestry or wainscoted with cedar, the furniture of which looked almost as ancient as the rooms themselves. The spacious fireplaces, where no mark of social cheer remained, presented an image of cold desolation, and the whole suite had so much the air of neglect and desertion, that it seemed as if the venerable persons whose portraits hung upon the walls had been the last to inhabit them. On leaving these rooms she found herself in another gallery, one end of which was terminated by a back staircase, and the other by a door that seemed to communicate with the north side of the chateau, but which being fastened, she descended the staircase, and, opening a door in the wall a few steps down, found herself in a small square room that formed part of the west turret of the castle. Three windows presented each a separate and beautiful prospect, that to the north overlooking the Languedoc, another to the west, the hills ascending toward the Pyrenees, whose awful summits crowned the landscape, and a third, fronting the south, gave the Mediterranean and a part of the wild shores of the Roussillon to the eye having left the turret and descended the narrow staircase she found herself in a dusky passage where she wandered unable to find her way till impatience yielded to apprehension and she called for assistance presently steps approached and light glimmered through a door at the other extremity of the passage which was opened with caution by some person who did not venture beyond it and whom blanche observed in silence till the door was closing when she called aloud and hastening toward it perceived the old housekeeper dear mam'selle is it you said dorothy how could you find your way hither had blanche been less occupied by her own fears she would probably have observed the strong expression of terror and surprise on dorothy's countenance who now led her through a long succession of passages and rooms that looked as if they had been uninhabited for a century till they reached that appropriated to the housekeeper, where Dorothy entreated she would sit down and take refreshment. Blanche accepted the sweetmeats offered to her, mentioned her discovery of the pleasant turret, and her wish to appropriate it to her own use. Whether Dorothy's taste was not so sensible to the beauties of the landscape as her young ladies, or that the constant view of lovely scenery had deadened it, she forbore to praise the subject of blanche's enthusiasm which however her silence did not repress to lady blanche's inquiry of whither the door she had found fastened at the end of the gallery led she replied that it opened to a suite of rooms which had not been entered during many years for added she my late lady died in one of them and i could never find in my heart to go into them since blanche though she wished to see these chambers Forbore on observing that dorothy's eyes were filled with tears to ask her to unlock them and soon after went to dress for dinner at which the whole party met in good spirits and good humour except the countess whose vacant mind overcome by the languor of idleness would neither suffer her to be happy herself or to contribute to the happiness of others mademoiselle byrne attempting to be witty directed her bandinage against henri who answered because he could not well avoid it rather than from any inclination to notice her whose liveliness sometimes amused but whose conceit and insensibility often disgusted him the cheerfulness with which blanche rejoined the party vanished on her reaching the margins of the sea she gazed with apprehension upon the immense expanse of waters which at a distance she beheld only with delight and astonishment and it was by a strong effort that she so far overcame her fears as to follow her father into the boat as she silently surveyed the vast horizon Bending round the distant verge of the ocean, an emotion of sublimest rapture struggled to overcome a sense of personal danger. A light breeze played on the water and on the silk awning of the boat, and waved the foliage of the receding woods that crowned the cliffs for many miles, and which the Count surveyed with the pride of conscious property as well as with the eye of taste. At some distance, among these woods, stood a pavilion which had once been the scene of social gaiety, and which its situation still made one of romantic beauty. Thither the Count had ordered coffee and other refreshments to be carried, and thither the sailors now steered their course, following the windings of the shore, round many a woody promontory and circling bay, while the pensive tones of horns and other wind instruments played by the attendants in the distant boat echoed among the rocks, and died along the waves. Blanche had now subdued her fears, a delightful tranquillity stole over her mind, and held her in silence, and she was too happy even to remember the convent, or her former sorrows, as subjects of comparison with her present felicity the countess felt less unhappy than she had done since the moment of her leaving paris for her mind was now under some degree of restraint she feared to indulge its wayward humours and even wished to recover the count's good opinion on his family and on the surrounding scene he looked with tempered pleasure and benevolent satisfaction while his son exhibited the gay spirits of youth anticipating new delights, and regretless of those that were past. After near an hour's rowing, the party landed, and ascended a little path, overgrown with vegetation. At a little distance from the point of the eminence, within the shadowy recess of the woods, appeared the pavilion, which Blanche perceived, as she caught a glimpse of its portico between the trees, to be built of a variegated marble as she followed the countess she often turned her eyes with rapture toward the ocean seen beneath the dark foliage far below and from thence upon the deep woods whose silence and impenetrable gloom awakened emotions more solemn but scarcely less delightful the pavilion had been prepared as far as was possible on a very short notice for the reception of its visitors But the faded color of its painted walls and ceiling, and the decayed drapery of its once magnificent furniture, declared how long it had been neglected and abandoned to the empire of the changing seasons. While the party partook of a collation of fruit and coffee, the horns, placed in the distant part of the woods, where an echo sweetened and prolonged their melancholy tones, broke softly on the stillness of the scene this spot seemed to attract the admiration of the countess, or, perhaps it was merely the pleasure of planning furniture and decorations that made her dwell so long on the necessity of repairing and adorning it, while the count, never happier than when he saw her mind engaged by natural and simple objects, acquiesced in all her design concerning the pavilion. The paintings on the walls and coved ceilings were to be renewed the canopies and sofas were to be of a light green damask marble statues of wood-nymphs bearing on their heads baskets of living flowers that were to adorn the recesses of the windows descending to the ground were to admit to every part of the room and it was of a form the various landscape one window opened upon a romantic glade where the eye roved among the woody recesses and the scene was bounded only by a lengthened pomp of groves from another the woods receding disclosed the distant summit of the pyrenees a third fronted an avenue beyond which the grey towers of the chateau le blanc and a picturesque part of its ruin were seen partially among the foliage while a fourth gave between the trees a glimpse of the green pastures and villages that dispersify the banks of the Ode. The Mediterranean, with bold cliffs that overlooked its shores, were the grand objects of a fifth window, and the others gave, in different points of view, the wild scenery of the woods. After wandering for some time in these, the party returned to the shore and embarked, and the beauty of the evening tempted them to extend their excursion they proceeded further up the bay. A dead calm had succeeded the light breeze that wafted them hither, and the men took to their oars. Around the waters were spread into one vast expanse of polished mirror, reflecting the gray cliffs and feathery woods that overhung its surface, the glow of the western horizon and the dark clouds that came slowly from the east. Blanche loved to see the dipping oars imprint the water, and to watch the spreading circles they left, which gave a tremulous motion to the reflected landscape without disturbing the harmony of its features. Above the darkness of the woods her eye now caught a cluster of high towers, touched with the splendor of the setting rays, and, soon after, the horns being then silent, she heard the faint swell of choral voices from a distance. What voices are those upon the air? said the Count, looking round and listening, but the strain had ceased. It seemed to be a Vesper's hymn, which I have often heard in my convent, said Blanche. We are near the monastery, then, observed the Count, and the boat, soon after, doubling a lofty headland, the monastery of St. Clair appeared, seated near the margin of the sea, where the cliffs, suddenly sinking, formed a low shore within a small bay, almost encircling the woods among which partial features of the edifice were seen the great gate and gothic windows of the hall the cloisters and the side of a chapel more remote while a venerable arch which had once led to a part of the fabric now demolished stood a majestic ruin detached from the main building beyond which appeared a grand perspective of the woods On the grey walls the moss had fastened, and round the pointed windows of the chapel, the ivy and the briony hung in many a fantastic wreath, all without was silent and forsaken But While Blanche gazed with admiration on this venerable pile, whose effect was heightened by the strong lights and shadows thrown athwart it by a cloudy sunset, a sound of many voices, slowly chanting, arose from within. The Count bade his men to rest on their oars. The monks were singing the hymns of the Vespers, and some female voices mingled with the strain, which rose by soft degrees, till the high organ and the choral sound swelled into full and solemn harmony. The strain soon after dropped into sudden silence, and was renewed in a low and still more solemn key, till, at length, the holy chorus died away and was heard no more. Blanche sighed tears trembled in her eyes and her thoughts seemed wafted with the sounds to heaven while a rapt stillness prevailed in the boat a train of friars and then of nuns veiled in white issued from the cloisters and passed under the shade of the woods to the main body of the edifice the countess was the first of the party to awaken from this pause of silence these dismal hymns and friars makes one quite melancholy said she Twilight is coming on. Pray, let us return, or it will be dark before we get home. The Count, looking up, now perceived that the twilight of evening was anticipated by an approaching storm. In the east a tempest was collecting. A heavy gloom came on, opposing and contrasting the glowing splendor of the setting sun. The clamorous sea fowl skimmed in fleet circles upon the surface of the sea, dipping their light opinions in the wave, as they fled away in search of shelter. The boatmen pulled hard on their oars, but the thunder that now muttered at a distance and the heavy drops that began to dimple the water made the count determined to put back to the monastery for shelter, and the course of the boat was immediately changed. As the clouds approached the west, their lurid darkness changed to a deep ruddy glow which by reflection seemed to fire the tops of the woods and the shattered towers of the monastery the appearance of the heavens alarmed the countess and mademoiselle Byrne, whose expressions of apprehension distressed the count and perplexed his men while blanche continued silent now agitated with fear and now with admiration as she viewed the grandeur of the clouds and their effect on the scenery and listened to the long long peals of thunder that rolled through the air the boat having reached the lawn of the monastery the count sent a servant to announce his arrival and to entreat shelter of the superior who soon after appeared at the great gate attended by several monks while the servant returned with a message expressive at once of hospitality and pride but of pride disguised in submission the party immediately disembarked and having hastily crossed the lawn for the shower was now heavy were received at the gate by the superior who as they entered stretched forth his hand and gave his blessing as they passed into the great hall where the lady abbess waited attended by several nuns Clothed like herself in black and veiled in white, the veil of the abbess was, however, thrown half back, and discovered a countenance whose chaste dignity was sweetened by the smile of welcome with which she addressed the countess, whom she led with Blanche and Mademoiselle Byrne into the convent parlour, while the count and Henri were conducted by the superior to the refectory. The countess, Fatigued and discontented, received the politeness of the abbess with careless haughtiness, and had followed her, with indolent steps, to the parlour, over which the painted casements and wainscot of larchwood threw, at all times, a melancholy shade, and where the gloom of evening now lured almost to darkness. While the lady abbess ordered refreshments, and conversed with the countess, Blanche withdrew to a window the lower panes of which being without painting allowed her to observe the progress of the storm over the mediterranean whose dark waves that had so lately slept now came boldly swelling in long succession to the shore where they burst in white foam and threw up a high spray over the rocks a red sulphurous tint overspread the long line of clouds that hung over the western horizon beneath whose dark skirts the sun, looking out, illumined the distant shores of Languedo, as well as the tufted summits of the nearer woods, and shed a partial gleam on the western waves. The rest of the scene was in deep gloom, except where a sunbeam darting between the clouds glanced on the white wings of the sea-fowl that circled high among them, or touched the swelling sail of a vessel which was seen labouring in the storm. Blanche, for some time, anxiously watched the progress of the bark as it threw the waves in foam around it, and, as the lightning flashed, looked to the opening heavens, with many a sigh for the fate of the poor mariners. The sun at length set, and the heavy clouds which had long impended dropped over the splendour of his course the vessel however was yet dimly seen and blanche continued to observe it till the quick succession of flashes lighting up the gloom of the whole horizon warned her to retire from the window and she joined the abbess who having exhausted all her topics of conversation with the countess had now leisure to notice her but their discourse was interrupted by tremendous peals of thunder and the bell of the monastery soon after ringing out summoned the inhabitants to prayer as blanche passed the window she gave another look to the ocean where by the momentary flash that illumined the vast body of waters she distinguished the vessel she had observed before amidst a sea of foam breaking the billows the mast now bowing to the waves and then rising high in the air She sighed fervently as she gazed, and then followed the lady abbess and the countess to the chapel. Meanwhile, some of the count's servants, having gone by land to the chateau for carriages, returned soon after vespers had concluded, when, the storm being somewhat abated, the count and his family returned home. Blanche was surprised to discover how much the windings of the shore had deceived her concerning the distance of the chateau from the monastery, whose vesper bells she had heard on the preceding evening from the window of the west saloon and whose towers she would also have seen from thence had not twilight veiled them on their arrival at the chateau the countess affecting more fatigue than she really felt withdrew to her apartment and the count with his daughter and henri went to the supper-room where they had not been long when they heard in a pause of the gust a firing of guns which the count understanding to be a signal of distress from some vessel in the storm went to a window that opened towards the mediterranean to observe further but the sea was now involved in utter darkness and the loud howlings of the tempest had again overcome every other sound blanche remembering the bark which she had seen before now joined her father with trembling anxiety in a few moments the report of guns was again borne along the wind and as suddenly wafted away a tremendous burst of thunder followed and in the flash that preceded it and which seemed to quiver over the whole surface of the waters a vessel was discovered tossing amidst the white foam of the waves at some distance from the shore impenetrable darkness again involved the scene but soon a second flash shewed the bark, with one sail unfurled, driving towards the coast. Blanche hung upon her father's arm, and looks full of agony, of united terror and pity, which were unnecessary to awaken the heart of the Count, who gazed upon the sea with a piteous expression, and, perceiving that no boat could live in the storm, forbore to send one, but he gave orders to his people to carry torches out upon the cliffs, hoping they might prove a kind of beacon to the vessel, or at least warn the crew of the rocks they were approaching. While Henri went out to direct on what part of the cliffs the light should appear, Blanche remained with her father at the window, catching every now and then as the lightnings flashed a glimpse of the vessel, and she soon saw, with reviving hope, the torches flaming on the blackness of night, and, as they waved over the cliffs, casting a red gleam on the gasping billows. When the firing gun was repeated, the torches were tossed high in the air, as if answering the signal, and the firing was then redoubled, but, though the wind bore the sound away, she fancied, as the lightnings glanced, that the vessel was much nearer the shore the count's servants were now seen running to and fro on the rocks some venturing almost to the point of the crags and bending over held out their torches fastened to long poles while others whose steps could be traced only by the course of the lights descended the steep and dangerous path that wound to the margins of the sea and with loud halloos hailed the mariners, whose shrill whistle and then feeble voices were heard at intervals, mingling with the storm. Sudden shouts from the people on the rocks increased the anxiety of Blanche to an almost intolerable degree, but her suspense concerning the fate of the mariners was soon over, when Henri, running breathless into the room, told that the vessel was anchored in the bay below, but in so shattered a condition that it was feared she would part before the crew could disembark. The Count immediately gave orders for his own boats to assist in bringing them to shore, and of such of these unfortunate strangers as could not be accommodated in the adjacent hamlet should be entertained at the chateau. Among the latter were Emily St. Aubert, Monsieur Dupont, Ludovico, and Annette, who, having embarked at Leghorn and reached Marseilles, were from thence crossing the Gulf of Lyon, when the storm overtook them. They were received by the count with his usual benignity, who, though Emily wished to have proceeded immediately to the monastery of St. Clair, would not allow her to leave the chateau that night, and, indeed, the terror and fatigue she had suffered would scarcely have permitted her to go farther. In Monsieur Dupont the count discovered an old acquaintance, and much joy and congratulations passed between them, after which Emily was introduced by name to the count's family, whose hospitable benevolence dissipated the little embarrassment which her situation had occasioned her and the party were soon seated at the supper-table the unaffected kindness of blanche and the lively joy she expressed on the escape of the strangers for whom her pity had been so much interested gradually revived emily's languid spirits and dupont relieved from his terrors for her and for himself felt the full contrast between his late situation on a dark and tremendous ocean and his present one in a cheerful mansion where he was surrounded with plenty elegance and smiles of welcome annette meanwhile in the servants hall was telling all of the dangers she had encountered and congratulating herself so heartily upon her own and ludovico's escape that on her present comforts that she often made all that part of the chateau ring with merriment and laughter ludovico's spirits were as gay as her own but he had discretion enough to restrain them and tried to check hers though in vain till her laughter at length ascended to my lady's chamber was sent to inquire what occasioned so much uproar in the chateau, and to command silence. Emily withdrew early to seek the repose she had so much required, but her pillow was long a sleepless one. On this her return to her native country, many interesting remembrances were awakened. All the events and sufferings she had experienced since she had quitted it, came in long succession to her fancy, and were chased only by the image of Valancourt, with whom to believe herself once more in the same land, after they had been so long and so distantly separated, gave her emotions of indescribable joy, but which afterwards yielded to anxiety and apprehension, when she considered the long period that had elapsed since any letter had passed between them, and how much might have happened in this interval to affect her future peace. But the thought that Valancourt might be now no more, or, if living, might have forgotten her, was so very terrible to her heart that she would scarcely suffer herself to pause upon the possibility. She determined to inform him on the following day of her arrival in France, which it was scarcely possible he could know but by a letter from herself, and, after soothing her spirits with the hope of soon hearing that he was well and unchanged in his affections, she at length sunk to repose. End of chapter 11 Reading by Belinda Brown of Indianapolis, Indiana